Welcome to the New Kind of Man podcast. This is episode 35, and we are winning against the odds with Aaron Hale. Aaron Hale is an interesting guy who doesn't take himself too serious, but yet he has had some incredibly serious things happen in his life, and he has overcome so many different things. He started uh, in his upbringing, he started up without a lot of struggle, but he walked into, he stepped into military service to find purpose, direction, and discipline to find himself as a cook, and not just a cook, but a chef, and a chef who cooked for admirals, dignitaries, and royalty, but that wasn't enough. Then he looked at what was going on in the world, and he realized that he wanted to contribute in a different way, so he got out of the Navy. He re-enlisted in the Army as an EOD technician, Explosive Ordnance Disposal Technician, and that's really where his story starts to take off, and we hear all about that. Well, this past weekend was the 4th of July, and my hope and my desire for you, if you are living in the United States of America, if you at least uh, enjoyed that day, but also reflected upon all of those who have bled and died protecting freedom and the cause of freedom. It is the, it's a day of independence, but yet it's for us to be independent and to be a nation that has values and that has laws and that allows us to have freedom, I think it's good for us to acknowledge the sacrifices that have been given for the cause of freedom. So if you are a service member, like I'm a service member, I just want to say thank you for your service, uh, whether you're a veteran from pastime or if you're current uh, military. Again, thank you for your service and your sacrifice. We greatly appreciate you and the service that you provide for this great country. Well, here on the podcast, I have talked about my friends at Narrative Brand, and I just want to mention them again. Narrative Brand's doing a great job. They've really helped me to uh, convey my story through graphics and art and through the creative means that it takes to make the presentation of a new kind of man fresh and, and new, and including uh, a couple different hat designs that actually are in the work right now. They'll be in in a couple weeks, and if you're interested in getting a hat and the pricing of that, you can go ahead and hit me up at chad at beanewman.com, and I will let you know how you can get a hat. But that design was created by my friends at Narrative Brand. So if you are interested in someone to help you to tell a better story, tell your story in a better way, in a more creative way through graphic design and art and, uh, and also through just website design, you want to talk to my friend AJ at Narrative Brand. And you can go to his website at www.narrativebrand.co, not .com, .co, to get connected with AJ. He is doing a fantastic job. And look out for those hats. If you are following me on Instagram, you'll be able to see me wear these hats. Uh, if there's something that you would be interested in, hit me up, either on IG or also through the email that I gave just a couple minutes ago. Well now, gentlemen, let's get after this conversation with Aaron Hale and learn how we, like he, can maybe learn to, to win against the odds. Welcome to the New Kind of Man podcast, and today on the podcast is Aaron Hale. Aaron Hale is uh, a man who has quite an inspirational story, and he has, uh, has spent time in the service, 
and we're going to hear all about what happened before that, during that, and then since, and you are going to be inspired by Aaron's story. So Aaron, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Hey, thanks for having me on. Yeah, it's my pleasure. And what I'd like to do just as we kind of uh, enter into the podcast is just give a little bit of, uh, of your backstory, maybe your family that you have now and then where you grew up. Uh, well, I'm a Ohio native, uh, Ohio State Buckeye fan. Um, I'm actually, I grew up living a pretty vanilla Norman Rockwell life in rural Ohio. Um, but uh, I, I grew up without uh, much hardship or, you know, anything that makes a really compelling backstory. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> um, but uh, I also um, you know, didn't have, you know, that, that pressure to excel. And, and, and I didn't have much ambition or drive or anything. I went to college because that's what I was supposed to do. Uh, but I had this picture of college that I got from Animal House. And um, within about three semesters, uh, I was, it was a mutual thing. I knew I wasn't supposed to, and the university didn't want to invite me back. So um, <laughs> it wasn't, um, you have to actually do schoolwork when you go to college. It isn't just Animal House and parties. Is I, that what you're saying? I literally forgot where my classes were. Um, <laughs> yeah, it was, it was, it was pretty bad. Um, uh, so I, I, uh, I just pissed away a lot of, uh, my tuition money and, and I, it was, it was one of those serious life kick in the pants, come to Jesus moments where, you know, you, you go, I gotta do something with my life. I just got kicked out of college for being dumb, uh, or just being lazy, you know, uh, and uh, it was, I, had a, I needed a change of venue. I needed a change of my mindset. Uh, I needed to find some goals, discipline, uh, direction. I needed a mission. And you know, that's when I decided that I would uh, join the military to, to get all of that plus the, the GI Bill so that I could, you know, continue my education this time with, uh, you know, all the, the, the proper standards and principles of leading a full and complete life. Mm. So uh, uh, at, the, at the time, I, you know, I've always been, um, a, you know, a, uh, I've always been a cook. My, my family uh, has this uh, creative gene. My, my mom and my, my brother are, are incredible artists. And it actually goes back further in our, our family. And, but my creative talent uh, led me into uh, the kitchen and I was cooking since I could uh, reach over the, the counter. Uh, and, you know, God bless my mom for, you know, being my guinea pig growing up. Uh, <laughs> but uh, I wanted to be a chef and I decided that uh, when joining the Navy that I would be a Navy cook and I didn't have any uh, misconceptions or, or, you know, any ideas uh, uh, other than I'd be cooking in a huge ship's galley with these, you know, you know, the vats the size of Volkswagens, cooking mashed potatoes for the troops. But I was going to get some on-the-job training, and I was going to get that a GI Bill. Well, um, 
uh, within two years uh, of leaving basic training, I was cooking for a three-star admiral uh, on, a, on the, 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 the Sixth Fleet Commander's flagship in Gaeta, Italy. And I was, I was actually cooking really, you know, it was real food uh, for- How did you get that gig? Yeah, that was uh, it was fantastic. I was uh, uh, traveling all around Europe, learning fine cuisine, cooking for dignitaries, uh, royalty in some cases, uh, and it was uh, it was fantastic. But um, about uh, this was uh, around uh, two thousand four, two thousand five time. The uh, the war, both wars were in full swing, mm-hmm. and uh, we were now floating around the Mediterranean, uh, you know, going to battle stations, and, you know, it's still the flagship and we're still home ported in Italy and just for the most part, we're just doing figure eights out in the Mediterranean. But uh, I felt at that time that um, I needed to do something a little more direct. I'd begun um, learning the discipline and I'd gotten those things that were important personally, like the, the selfish goals. But along the way, it also picked up a far stronger sense of patriotism, mm-hmm. sense of duty, you know, and, I, and so, you know, the selfless service. And I wanted to, uh, I wanted to be there on the battlefield. Mm-hmm. So once I got back to stateside, uh, I volunteered to become an individual augmentee or uh, a, basically a sailor filling army roles over in Afghanistan. And I went and uh, still a cook. So they put me as uh, the NCYC of an uh, army chow hall in the middle of uh, Afghanistan. But that's when I met some EOD technicians and I'd never uh, known about this, uh, but EOD, Explosive Ordnance Disposal, mm-hmm. the military's bomb squad. I met these guys. I learned all about uh, you know what they did. Uh, they were their first responders uh, on the battlefield. They they you know they do everything unexploded ordnance to IEDs, uh, car bombs, you name it. Uh, anything from bullets to nuclear bombs. These are the guys that go out and when everybody's running away, they run into the fray. Mm-hmm. And I. Uh, was immediately hooked. That's what I wanted to do. So part of your your story, starting out with uh, just as, you know, growing up where you did and with not a whole lot of expectations is what you said, Aaron, and then going through just sounds like you're just kind of not a whole lot of resistance. What was the switch? Like, I know that you went into the Navy to basically uh, to, to serve and kind of get away and then to reset. It sounds like you matured some. But really, what was the catalyst that, that made you shift to, to think differently or even to, to live differently after that? Because even the, the being a cook, while it's honorable and it's in the service, you know, it's, it's a part of the service, it's necessary and it's, it's great. But yet, what was the, the catalyst that ultimately led you to, to say, no, I, I don't want to just do this. I want to go a step further to then... Uh, to go out and then deploy with the army folks, even while you're taking care of the chow hall. What was that? Because I think there's a transition there before the EOD transition. What was the, what was the catalyst there? Um, I found that 
uh, the military is really good about placing you in challenging positions, mm-hmm. even though uh, you know, I not joined you know a combat arms role. Uh, I was quickly, even from the first days in basic training, I was placed in leadership positions, uh, and I was quickly advanced in in rank and in responsibility. Uh, almost every time before I felt I was ready. And each time I was challenged to do and be better. And I found that, and and, and this is one of the earliest, looking back, this is one of the earliest lessons I've I've learned is that uh, you don't, there's no growth without challenge. There's, there's, There's no success without struggle. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's what I was doing. I was I was finding that if I was becoming complacent, um, if I was becoming comfortable, that I wasn't challenging myself, and I needed to I needed to move on. Now, mm-hmm. uh, when I, I I like I I said I really enjoyed being a Navy cook. I really enjoyed cooking for the admiral and uh, being stationed in Italy for four years. Is is absolutely incredible, but hardship duty it is not. Mm. Uh, it was an incredible uh, learning experience, but I saw uh, a better way to serve my nation, mm-hmm. and I saw a challenge in volunteering to do something outside my comfort zone. That's awesome. Yeah, I think I think that you had to have been a really good cook because I was lower enlisted Navy. And let me just tell you, I think that's where they put the people who didn't necessarily know how to cook. And uh, so <laughs> they prepared food, but the food wasn't that palatable. So if you if you got up to the point where you're actually feeding a, a three star, I would say that is, you know, that that says a lot about your cooking ability. Um and yet it's such a drastic thing. I think there's something that's, that's really valuable what you said, Aaron, because every, to me, my opinion is every man, in order for them to grow, they have to face adversity. They have to walk in it and walk through it the best they can. And sometimes that adversity is very, you know, it's very potent. Sometimes it's, it, it does, you know, it changes us. Literally, like you've been physically changed because of, of the adversity the, that you walked in but yet I think it's compelling too, because you realize that even within your growth, that now at least that you see that, that a man has to see that adversity and the only way that he can grow is by walking through it. And, and I think there's something happening now with just manhood generally is men are walking away from that adversity and they think that it's easier and everything about, you know, the, the culture around us is promising that it's easy. And yet you chose the hard way. And, and I thank you, sir, for your service, and I thank you for all that you have sacrificed for it and for us and for freedom's sake. But as you continue on now, just taking the taking the journey now, you had gone from a Navy cook, and, and now you are transitioning in, into Afghanistan. Now you're in charge of, of a chow hall. What was that transition like for you to become an EOD? Because that too is, it seems like a progression because I know where you're going, but yet for the listener, they may not know. 
Well, uh, just just transitioning from cooking for for the, the admiral and twenty five of his staff to cooking for seven hundred uh, NATO troops uh, was a bit of a culture shock. But uh, uh, also running uh, a kitchen full of Afghan national local uh, local national cooks it was mm-hmm. it was it was an adventure. But uh, uh, there was just something um, when when these EOD technicians that I'd first met talked about how difficult it was to get through the school and the attrition rate and and how tight knit the brotherhood is on the other side and the fact that they get to save lives mm-hmm. on the battlefield uh, and something just clicked there there was no doubt about it in my mind so I put in a request to and the Navy, they call it striking over, you know, changing jobs. Mm-hmm. And um, the Navy promptly said, no. Uh, I guess <laughs> they, they, liked my, they liked my cooking too much. Yeah. Um, but uh, um, I'd, I'd had it in my mind that once I'd finally gotten my first confirmed kill with an egg roll, I decided I was going to save lives <laughs> instead. Uh, oh. But... Uh, uh, then my contract was uh, nearing its end, and I'd have to decide whether I was going to re-enlist again or uh, get out. So um, once I returned from my my first deployment to Afghanistan, um, I let my contract run out, and I went over to the army recruiter, and I just had, you know handed them my uh, service record uh, from the Navy, and I said, "I'm going to go EOD." And uh, the uh, the soldier said, "Welcome aboard, sailor." Uh, so um, yeah, I changed uniforms. I got to keep uh, my my rank. So I, I joined the army as a sergeant, hmm. and uh, I went uh, through a, a cut uh, like a, an abridged version of basic training, um, less yelling, all of the book stuff you know the the basic skills and all that mm-hmm. and then um uh went to eod school uh, it's about a year-long training uh, uh and i became um an eod technician uh, i can tell you there is no way in the world i could have been an eod technician there is no way I, I i remember going when i was in the navy and working on a flight deck working on on the flight deck of the carriers and deployments. And they said, you know, this is the most dangerous, you know, this is one of the most dangerous jobs in the world and, and all of that. And it, it, it was dangerous, but it really, as long as you kept your head on a swivel, we weren't really in any danger unless you're stupid. But, and then I actually started to hear about EODs and doing stuff like that. I was like, no way. Give me the flight deck every day. I want no part of being an EOD. What you guys did was extraordinary. You know, thank you. Uh, it, it's funny you'd say something like that because uh, I keep thinking, you know, I, I joined EOD because I was too much of a sissy to become a fireman. <laughs> uh, just, I, I don't know. I think I could blow stuff up a lot easier it's all about, than I could take it apart. It's all about uh, uh, perspective, right? That's right. Uh, and it's true. Uh, it, it may be a dangerous job and uh, there's no way you could, there's no way to make uh, what we do safe, right. but 
uh, if you if you pay attention to what you're doing and you train hard, you study uh, your your business, um, you can mitigate the risk. Mm. Uh, and it, it was funny. Um, a friend of mine once sent me a link. The, the, there was a a poll of the the top list of scariest jobs in the world, and one was like number one was soldier. Number three was bomb squad. Number two was a high rise window washer. <laughs> so if the the, the uh, chocolatier thing doesn't work out, I'm gonna get by a squeegee and get a hat trick. <laughs> oh. Please do, please do. Uh, you you apparently have the courage for it, so I don't know. I, I'm not going to stop you. You may want to consult with Michaela first. I'm not really sure. I'll leave that up to you. So well, I don't think um, I don't think I'm, I'm afraid of heights anymore. <laughs> so when you gone through the EOD training, how many years did you actually serve active duty EOD? Uh, I was uh, I was in the army for six years. Okay, so six years you went in as an E five. That's just a regular sergeant, right? The E five. Uh, but uh, there was a promotion in there, so mm-hmm. um, I when I was uh, finally medically retired, I was E six. Awesome, awesome. And so six years as an EOD, and uh, from whatever depth that you're comfortable with talking about it. Tell us about the what happened and the events that were surrounding December 2011. Well, by then I was on my second deployment as an EOD technician. Uh, it's my second time to Afghanistan. I one time to Afghanistan, uh, one time to uh, Iraq in between, mm-hmm. and uh, this time uh, I'd uh, reached. When I mean, we kind of believe is the pinnacle of the EOD world is uh, becoming a team leader. Uh, uh, EOD teams, at least in the army, run in uh, sets of three. And it'll be two uh, team members and a team leader. And it's the team leader that's the one that puts on the bomb suit, uh, does that long walk down towards uh, the explosive item. Because you you want the most experienced, the most uh, trained, you know, the, the, the longest uh, and the tooth um, mm-hmm. one to, to be performing the job. Mm-hmm. So uh, I was, you know, on my first appointment as a team leader. And you know, we were in uh, the Zaray district, uh, which is a part of the Kandahar province. We're not far outside of Kandahar. Uh, and in a, our, our, my team was in a, a small village called Sia uh, uh, Choi. Hmm. Uh, the Zaray district is uh, what um, the, the Russians used to call the heart of darkness. It's the actual birthplace of the Taliban. Okay. And Sia um, Choi, I asked a terp, an interpreter, um, what Sia Choi means. And he says, I think that means cemetery. Wow. Like, great, we're in Tombstone. <laughs> exactly. Wow. Uh, but uh, it was it was extremely busy. Uh, we we worked. Uh, we definitely earned our pay on that deployment for eight months straight. We were running post blast scenarios uh, where um, IEDs had taken out uh, our, 
armored trucks or whatnot. And I do, uh, you know, CSI type collection, uh, measuring of the craters and that kind of stuff. Um, or, um, you know, be called in on an IED that was located and, and um, mitigate the risk, collect the evidence and, and, and destroy the, uh, the rest. Um, and uh, about eight months in, I was, I was just off of my uh, two weeks of R&R. Every year-long deployment, you get two weeks of uh, vacation time off the battlefield. And I had just gone back uh, home, uh, got uh, to see my, uh, my, my firstborn turn one. I got to have Thanksgiving with the family. Even got to uh, see uh, my dad, my son's grandfather, dress up like Mickey Mouse for his birthday. So, and knowing my dad, that's like a once in a lifetime thing. <laughs> so, it was a, it was a, I call that the the best uh, last page in the, the photo album ever. Mm -hmm. But uh, I was I was was just getting back into um, was back in my team truck that picked me up from the airfield. And I threw my luggage in the back of the, the truck on top of the robot and we start heading back towards uh, our command outpost. And along the way, uh, the convoy commander calls back to EOD and says, hey, there's something in the uh, up ahead on the side of the road, can you take a look? And even though it, it wasn't actually our area of operations, we were the EOD team, we were first responders, this is what we do. So of course, uh, they set up security cordon all the way around, um, they had a uh, local, uh, they had uh, the Afghan police uh, that I guess had detected it or, or called it in. Um, and uh, we got to work. We set up a safe area. My team members uh, started getting charges ready and set the, the robot out. And the robot discovered what we always saw. 98% of the time was just a you know, jug full of homemade explosives connected to a nine volt battery and a pressure plate. Hmm. So the, the robot ripped out the pressure plate, effectively you know, severing the, the circuitry, um, but it couldn't get the uh, jug out of the hard pack dirt. Hmm. And I wanted to get uh, some more evidence. And I wanted to make sure we, we did everything we could to send, because we take evidence and we literally, you know, we, biometrics, electronics, uh, chemical analysis, we do all this so that we can, um, we can catch these guys, uh, mm -hmm. the, bomb, the bomb makers, the finances, all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to, if I could do it safely, I was going to get as much as I could off of this thing before I, uh, I blew it up or bipped it, uh, blow in place. So uh, I jumped out of the truck. I started making my way towards it. I had a metal detector in one hand and I had um, my uh, uh, <clears throat> evidence kit in the other at about 20 or 30 yards uh, from the original IED, a secondary device detonated. Mm. And it hadn't yet been discovered. And um, just about the same time, my metal detector was trying to tell me something really important uh, I get the, you know, the mule kick from hell. Mm. Uh, I get sent uh, into the air, uh, I land on my knees and elbows, and um, the lights go out. Now, I thought my, my helmet had just been pushed over my, my face because the blast was so hard. 
Hmm. Um, so I first did the functions test to wiggle the fingers and toes and knees and elbows and all that. And it uh, seemed to be all in order. So I reached up to uh, fix my helmet and get back to work only to find out that the helmet was gone. Hmm. And that's when I, I thought, oh no, this is bad. The army is going to want that back. <laughs> they always want it back. <laughs> uh, the, the crap that goes through your head. Yeah, and it was that was literally what I thought. Like, man, I better not lose that thing. Um, <laughs> but I also realized that something was really wrong. Um, I couldn't see, and there was nothing blocking my vision. So. Um, What's supposed to happen in scenarios where the team leader goes down is that the team members are supposed to clear a safe path. So uh, up to me, so uh, medics can can get to me, but I was still ambulatory, my legs still worked. Mm -hmm. So I got up and I started, uh, kind of looked like a zombie walk with my hands out in front of me, trying to mm -hmm. find my way back to the truck. Who knows, I could have been stepping on another ID. Uh, I don't even know yeah. where the truck, really was anymore um but i didn't want my team coming in mm -hmm. for for all i knew they were just chasing me around like uh some kind of benny hill sketch um but, what could you hear at that point i know you couldn't see anything what could you hear was the did the percussion like temporarily deafen you or what 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 was going on there could you hear their instructions the rest of your team well they were coming from a little ways off okay. um but uh both my eardrums were uh, both my eardrums were, were blown um, okay. perforated uh but i wasn't deaf i uh, i could hear i mean it was it was ringing tinnitus i was i had my bell i had my bell rung sure um but i still had sound it just wasn't very good at the time um but uh you know, my team finally, they grabbed me, dragged me back to the safe area. Medics came running up from their uh, outside the cordon. Uh, medevac chappers were there in like 14 minutes because we were just coming from Kandahar. Mm -hmm. And um, within 48 hours, I was at Walter Reed. And, wow. uh, 48 hours from from Afghanistan to the United States in 48 hours. And that was only because they, they sent me to a land stool and wanted to keep me for 24 uh, because of the swelling in my brain. They wanted to make sure I could survive the transatlantic flight. So they probably could have got me there quicker. Wow. Yeah, for those of you who are, who are listening right now and you're not tracking with that part, that is incredibly fast. Usually that's not how it happens. You don't go from the battlefield right into Walter Reed into, you know, a stateside hospital. Usually you end up going to Germany, Italy, you go somewhere else for a, an amount of time before you ever get into the state. So 48 hours is drastic to go from the battlefield explosion to, to a hospital bed. Stateside is really a phenomenal thing. Well, what had happened, the blast, uh, had it hit me from, from miraculously didn't come from directly below me hmm. i don't know they were the the bomb placers are not the bomb makers hmm. uh and sometimes these guys aren't the brightest 
They've learned that our metal detectors pick up the batteries uh, and everything else is pretty much uh, uh, invisible under the mm -hmm. ground. So they'll take these nine volts and they'll stretch, they'll, they'll, they'll stretch the battery out around like far, like they'll, they'll, they'll set it, they'll offset it from the mm -hmm. IED. Um, and sometimes they just move the pressure plate too, or they, there's no rhyme or reason to some, some of these guys, mm -hmm. but somehow I stepped, I don't even know if I stepped, I'm pretty sure I stepped on a pressure plate, but the blast came from my right side and it blew up both my eardrums. Mm -hmm. It, uh, actually blew out my, my right eye. It fused the eyelids together, so I was doing like a permanent wink. Mm -hmm. um, a uh, piece of frag had cut, gashed directly across the bridge of my nose and then put a gash in my uh, left eye. And the doctors were in a hurry to see if they could, they could save it. Mm. Um, unfortunately, um, after a couple of surgeries, uh, they found that the new site was coming back. Um, so I lost both my eyes. Um, I'd also cracked my skull in several locations uh, to the point where I was leaking spinal fluid right out of my nose. Wow. Um, At one point, did you, like, was there any point in that that you gave up? Or, because Sorry. I think I think I said, was there any point in that that you that you gave up? Because I think a lot of people, given that situation, and obviously the forty-eight hour time frame, and now you're in Walter Reed. I think a lot of other people, honestly, just even good men, I think would just kind of throw their hands up and say, "Screw it, it's over. I, I don't know what else to do." It's like, you know, almost like giving up on life because that's a really drastic thing. And I realize you haven't given up on life since then you've done some incredible things. You've ran marathons, you've climbed mountains, you've solo whitewater kayaked. I mean, you've done some amazing things, but in that moment, was there a sense of powerlessness or was it, did you already have the, the, the resolve to, to overcome this in that moment? It would be a lie to say that there weren't weak times, you know, mm -hmm. the, Every once in a while, those demons, they're, they're always, always just outside. The mm -hmm. what ifs, the, the why me's, mm -hmm. um, that um, self-defeat, uh, you know, the, the feeling of being a victim. Mm -hmm. it, 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 they're, they're always out there uh, if you let them come in. Uh, and and I could have I fallen down that, that shame spiral. Uh, but... I have, I have an incredible family. Um, my younger brother, six years younger than me, he was in a, a tragic um, uh, highway collision. He used to work uh, used to work uh, highway like road construction, and was hit by another construction worker on the site, and wow. was uh, uh, permanently um, injured. Uh, so, and he underwent like it was six months of reco recovery, um, with permanent brain damage, spinal injuries and all that. And so my mom was by his bedside that entire time. And she came into Walter Reed, like, this is not her first rodeo. Hmm. Uh, same with my sister, who was actually a pediatric ICU nurse. 
And she was there, um, like taking over Walter Reed. She was telling, <laughs> she was telling the doctors what to do. She was translating all the jargon for us. That's helpful. And then it's just cracking the whip. And so it was, uh, you know, I wasn't, I, I wasn't allowed <laughs> to, to, to be sorry for myself. Mm. And by then, um, you know, I'd taken on these roles. I was, I was a father, I was a son, mm. you know, I was a, the, you know, the eldest brother uh, of a sergeant in the army, a staff mm. sergeant, a team leader uh, of, you know, you know, in a job that requires that, you know, you step up. Mm-hmm. So there I was in a difficult situation and it didn't take me long to snap out, uh, you know, to kick back those, uh, uh, those demons. Mm-hmm. And I just, I was sitting in uh, the, the hospital bed at Walter Reed thinking, you know, if I'm going to be blind, I'm going to be the best damn blind person I can. Yeah. Um, right. And that's, that's how I got started. Um, I, uh, I started researching you know, I, I, they, they taught me how to learn, you know, use the, uh, what was it, uh, the, the voiceover mm-hmm. uh, and uh, accessible computers and, and phone, iPhone and all that. And yeah. I started Google, you know, I started, started uh, researching blind plus running, blind plus mm-hmm. skiing. A few names kept popping up, like uh, Eric Weinmayer is the first blind person to climb Mount Everest. So I found him and I went mountain climbing with him. Uh, and uh, it's when, awesome. you know, we did, uh, I joined an all wounded veteran team led by Eric Weinmayer, not a veteran himself, but his dad uh, as a former Marine. Mm-hmm. And uh, on the anniversary of his Everest ascent, he takes a team of wounded veterans up a mountain and it, 2013, we went up uh, an 18,000-foot uh, 18, peak in the Peruvian Andes. Wow. Uh, there was a guy named, uh, this is a guy named Lonnie Bedwell, who is a, a blind uh, 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 Navy guy, who uh, is the first blind person to kayak the entire Grand Canyon. Wow, that is intense. And I went kayaking with him. We went, uh, we've done the Yellowstone River a couple times, uh, some other places. And, and I just, I, I started surrounding myself with people who've already done it. Yeah. And I found that no matter what the hardship, we have the capacity to, to overcome. No matter what life throws at us, we can handle it. Uh, <clears throat> one of the things I always, always talk about is it being EOD. We're each each one of those those three person teams gets an entire shipping container full of tools, bomb suits and hazmat kits and robots, you name it, power tools. And we get sent out to like Afghanistan and we get this armored truck that's not quite as big as a shipping container. So we gotta leave some tools behind. We pick all the most important tools we think we need to get uh get the job done and we cram every corner of that truck full of as many tools as we we could possibly uh need Mm. and then we found ourselves in afghanistan on dirt packed goat trails 
that couldn't support any vehicles. So now it's what we could carry on our backs. And we left the rest of the tools behind. We ended up doing the same job we were expected to do with that shipping container, but we had a few blocks of C4, a rope, uh, and, and a, you know, like a good knife, um, and a carabiner. You know, we would, we would just innovate. And it didn't matter. We don't worry about what the tools we had to leave behind. So now I'm short a couple of tools, mm-hmm. but I still got this job that I have to do. I think it's awesome how you sought out people who were already excelling, who had a, you know, they were, they were blind as well, but yet they didn't give up and that you put yourself in a situation like you didn't call me and be like, Hey, um, I need to learn how to kayak. Could you kind of guide me through this? You picked people who had done incredibly hard things and yet you wanted to learn from the best in that given field, which I think is phenomenal and speaks really into you just as a man, and ultimately what has happened since. I know that, again, I, I mentioned a couple of minutes ago uh, about running marathons. Prior to recording, we talked about you wanting to, to not just run marathons, but also ultra marathons that you're into now, and which all of that is amazing. But yet I know some other things happened after, like after you had had the blindness from the IED blast, you went out and then you figured out life blind and then you google plus whatever it was and then you kind of just you know just kind of made your way through it but what else happened in your journey i think in 2015 what else happened in your journey that kind of added another layer to the difficulty i was i was just off of this epic uh like four stop tour where i went went to uh Colorado climbed 3 14,000 foot peaks in a day. Mm-hmm. Uh, I went to Texas and actually went hunting with a buddy, uh, it, which is an incredible story all of its own. I had a guy uh, over my shoulder. We used a laser dot and, and a guy on a uh, IR scope talking, talking us in. It was like a team hunting thing. Awesome. Um, and then I was kayaking with Lonnie in uh, Montana. Uh, I, I had a, a speech in there as well, where I was talking all about, you know, learning to deal with, you know, you know life struggles and succeed and triumph over tragedy. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was just back uh, off of this trip. I was just dropping my, my gear um, at, in, in the house. I was on the phone with um, my new girlfriend and I was feeling pretty fatigued. In fact, I was so dizzy that I thought I was going to fall over. I didn't know what was happening to me. I told her, I'm just going to lay down. Uh, it was a pretty big trip. Uh, I'm going to lay down, take a nap. I'll call you back. Um, <clears throat> I woke up with... I don't even know how to describe it. The headache, migraine, they don't even do it justice. It was like somebody just poured acid into my head and it was wow. eating away my, my skull. Mm. Within moments, I knew that I had to call 911 and I, the operator answered the, uh, answered the call and said, state the nature of the emergency. I said, I felt a little embarrassed. I said, ma'am, I have a really bad headache. Mm. And she said, on a scale of one to 10, how bad is it? And I said, ma'am, I've never felt a pain like this in my life. And I've literally been blown up before. 
<laughs> yeah. uh, what was her response? Probably, uh, not, probably said, not knowing whether to take you seriously or not. She said the ambulance is on its way. Um, <laughs> and uh, I was soon, um, the, the, uh, the, the, I, the last thing I remember uh, before passing out was uh, the, uh, the paramedic said, I'm just going to give you something to help you relax. Uh, and the, the hospital, I live a mile and a half from the hospital. And I was out cold. Um, next thing I know, my mom is by my side. My girlfriend, who lives in California, uh, was back in Florida where I live. And, and I thought it had just been minutes. Like, how did you guys get here so fast? But uh, I'd actually been out for four days. Wow. Or, or at least I wasn't lucid. They said I was awake, but I was very confused. I was, I was angry at times. I was thrashing. I'd even, I'd even broken free from my restraints. Uh, and they said I had contracted bacterial meningitis. So over the course of the next uh, few days and couple of weeks, um, I was in a fight for my life because the meningitis had uh, attacked my brain and it was, it, was, it was eating my brain. It was killing me. Mm. And um, whether it was the heavy doses of antibiotics or the bacteria itself, even though I survived, <clears throat> I, uh, it stole what was left of my hearing that the bomb hadn't taken. Hmm. So I was left not just blind, but 100% deaf. Wow. There was a chance that I could regain some of my hearing through cochlear implants. Mm -hmm. uh, but it would take over six months before the first one would start bringing a signal into my auditory nerve. And it was the other side, the right side, where the blast had come mm -hmm. from was the first one that it was more damaged than my left. I heard what far worse beforehand in my right side. Um, they did that one and they, they, they tuned it in and, and it, uh, um, it didn't work. I mean, it, it, I, was, I was hearing, it was like static. You know, when you're just outside on the radio signal in your car, you know, like outside a city, mm -hmm. and you, you hear something coming through, but you can't understand what it is. Mm -hmm. That's what that was. Mm -hmm. So, um, man, talk about the demons wanting to come in again. Yeah. Now, did the meningitis, there. was it actually there because of your, uh, because of what had happened from previous injuries? Is that the reason, were the two things connected or were they disconnected? Well, we believe it was connected because okay. uh, the um, the cracks in my skull uh, that I was leaking spinal fluid, they had patched it up, but I'd never stopped uh, leaking. It was just a very small uh, leak of the spinal fluid, and nobody realized it. So there, what a, what is a pathway out is also a pathway in. Mm. It was a direct open. Uh, channel right to my brain wow. uh, it was it was exposed and uh, meningitis is is like a is a waterborne um uh, bacteria so i could have we don't really know where it came from but it could have been while i was kayaking right who knows 
Um, so uh, there I was uh, in the hospital and then at home recovering. And for six months uh, and longer, I was trapped in my body. I was, uh, my whole world ended at my fingertips. Uh, I couldn't get a, a signal out. Or I, I, I couldn't get a signal in. Uh, I could still talk, I could, but I couldn't communicate, which is back and forth. My, my girlfriend uh, moved in. She left her place in California. She left her job. Um, <clears throat> and she moved in with me and she nursed me back to health. And, and she began writing every letter of every word that she needed to say to me in the palm of my hand, mm-hmm. which is in itself tedious and frustrating. And at yeah. the time I thought, man, I should have learned Braille. But, uh, <laughs> um, but it was the only way to communicate. And I was just, I remember thinking, you know, when has one soldier uh, paid his due? You know, when is, yeah. there's one guy had enough, you know, what this, this really isn't fair, mm. but what's fair. And, and, you know, the fair doesn't exist. That's, right. that's not, that's not even a thing. That's a figment of our imagination. That's a made up term mm-hmm. fair. So um, again, I just decided, you know, okay, missing some more tools, but I'm still alive. I still have, I'm still responsible to my kid. Mm. I'm still responsible to my girlfriend. Uh, so responsible my family uh, and I have an opportunity here to I mean to, to put uh, the, you know I'd become a, a speaker over the, the the years since I'd lost my eyesight and I told this tell the story of going blind and then coming back from that and and finding success finding happiness and, and doing even more with my life. And here I was mm. thinking about quitting and I wasn't even, you know, practicing the tenets of what I was preaching. Wow. That, so that has to be such a difficult thing too, because then you have to practice what you preach. You just told and inspired all these people. And now it's your time to take your own advice. And that had to have been, that had to have brought on a whole other level of humility as if, you hadn't had all these other trials of humility before that. And yet, what was the, you know, obviously there, there's this challenge to humility and, and the decision ultimately, or many, many decisions probably daily, moment by moment of, of how you overcome this. But, but what did that look like as, as far as you trying to progress through this? Obviously, you had Michaela there by your side. You had you said that one of the compelling things is you knew that you had life. So you were accountable to yourself. You're accountable to her. You're accountable to to your family, your kids and into other people around you. But how did all of that get mustered up into being the man that you are today? Well, I believe that's that's the whole point is that our our lives don't just belong to us. Mm -hmm. Our decisions uh, don't only affect us. Hmm. Yeah, and, and it's so, and, and that was one of the most important uh, things I learned in in the service is that you don't you don't rush into battle for the pay. Hmm. You don't rush into battle for yourself. Uh, you become the best warrior you can 
so that you can be the best for those service members to your left and right. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't going to give up, you know, just for me, uh, because I, I, frankly, I don't think I had, would have the motivation to do it on my own. Uh, I wouldn't, I, 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 that's not, that wouldn't have just for that selfish reason, it wouldn't have been um, strong enough of a why. But my I'm family. I'm thankful certain- that that wasn't for you. I'm thankful that it, that it wasn't some sort of inner selfish resolve that actually brought about the change for you to be the new man that you are today. I'm thankful that you stepped out, that you were able to step outside of yourself and realize, wow, there's actually more to my life than just me. Because, because, you know, if you're to live selfishly and it's the same for you, Aaron, as it would be for me, if I'm just to live selfishly, you know, I'm just going to be just a great big child. I mean, that's what kids are, right? They are just selfish. Like I, I've raised two kids and every child when they're really young is just really selfish. And I've seen a lot of grown men act very selfish and, and very boy-like. And you know, there's something I think that's compelling about your story is you found purpose. Some, and maybe you've had it, the, maybe you had it the whole time, but it seems like the greater purpose than self was a compelling, it was a North Star for you, if you will. You know, I love how uh, it was put in um, the uh, the Book of Joy by Archbishop uh, Desmond Tutu and the Dalai Lama, uh, where there, he was in, uh, I think it was the Archbishop, was in, in terrible pain. And, and he just looked out the window and he could, you know, in his, of his car, while well, he was rushed to the hospital, he saw poverty and, and, and malnutrition and mm just recognizing the, the, the pain in others, the empathy in the outside world and re- realizing that his was not the only pain out there mm. made his less uh, and easier to, to carry, his burden easier to, to, to carry. Um, it was a, a terrific book, by the way. Um, but uh, so there I was, uh, blind and deaf, and maybe there's a sliver of a chance to... to uh, get my hearing back, but I wasn't going to wait. And so I did what anybody in my situation would, and I started a chocolate company. It seems like a, a natural transition. Uh, well, ways, um, it's coming back home for you, though, because you being a cook, being not just a cook, but you being the quality of a chef, and I think that's different than a cook as far as the way that I look at it anyway. And so it's almost like a coming back to, it's almost a full circle journey for you. Well, that's the thing. It was, it was uh, therapeutic for me. I did yeah. the two things that um, I knew would make me feel better and that would keep me busy. Because that was one of those things is, is that being without your eyesight and your hearing, the things you can do are very limited. I, I couldn't use my, my phone or my computer, which were audio based. I couldn't listen to audio books or uh, read the news or my email or check Facebook or, you know, anything, watch TV, uh, you name it. So, uh, and when, when I lost my hearing, I'd also lost my inner ear balance, the vestibular balance. Mm-hmm. So, I couldn't even go for a walk. I was wheelchair bound for a little while, but um, I could hold on to the countertop with like a GI Joe Kung Fu grip 
And <laughs> uh, I see what you I, did there. I can I could still cook, and then I I also I got on the uh, the treadmill, and I just did you when you do the quick start, it just starts at like point five miles per hour. Yep. And I just walked, and it still felt like somebody was trying to rip the machine out from under me, mm. but I just walked. And eventually that was a slow jog. And then I was running again. Um, I take it, I took the uh, trekking poles that I brought with me into the mountains. And I learned how to walk again by doing this like extended crab walk thing down to my mailbox and back, which was exhausting. Mm-hmm. But eventually I was reaching further. I was challenging myself again in many different ways. Uh, and I would go down to our, like our neighborhood gate and back. We'd walk around the neighborhood. It was, it was extremely hard. Uh, and it was tiresome and exhausting, but I was making progress. And for and, you, so, and, so you start walking and you get to the point where you can you're starting to walk and now you're able to go to the mailbox with the help of your poles. And, and to date, what is the longest distance that you have ran? Uh, in 2014, I, I said, no, 2000, in 2015, uh, April, 2015, I ran the Boston marathon. Mm-hmm. Um, so until then I'd run, I think four marathons. And that was probably the longest distance. Yeah. Yeah. And, and now just from what we talked about before we started recording and now what are you training for? Right now I'm training for a hundred miler. Uh, the one that, uh, uh, I was registered for had been canceled because of, uh, the virus. But, uh, you know, by, by luck, I uh, found one right back in my hometown of Akron called the Canal Corridor. So that'll be in July, uh, running 100 miles uh, on the Erie Canal. And right now, uh, beginning, um, you know, starting the 1st of May, I'm on a virtual ultramarathon, which is uh, the, the great... Uh, was it the, the the great race across great virtual race across Tennessee? Mm. So it's a thousand kilometers, but of course there's an option to do a down and back. <laughs> and I know which one you're opting for. Judging judging by past history, I know which one you're opting for. So of course I'm I'm doing two thousand kilometers. Yeah, uh, on my treadmill, which is about an average of the uh, half marathon or so every single day. Wow. For four months. Man. Man, I'll tell you, in a, just as, as, as an aside, to run on a half or to run on a treadmill for 13 miles one time is incredible. But for you to commit to do it every day, wow, that is something else. I think the, the farthest I've ran on a treadmill was like three miles and it felt like 30 just because it's just the monotony of it, you know? And, well, um, I want to give myself at least a day off. So at least one of the days I'm doing a full marathon. Oh, okay. Well, that's good. That only makes sense. That only makes sense. Are you all, <laughs> I almost said something about seeing a psychiatrist, but that may be, <laughs> <that may> be... <laughs> Oh, that's great. 
So now you uh, you kind of you put this out there, and now you're a chocolatier, and and I know that we're on the backside of the of the conversation, and I want to be a respecter of your time, but you know how you know how much chocolate are you guys producing? How can people get the chocolate? It's something that that you do. I've gone to the website. I think it's just phenomenal, and it's actually you know it's not too far from me actually where you make it or where it is made. So. Give us just the rundown about the chocolate, how we can find it, and uh, all those details too, Aaron. Absolutely. So, like I said, I, I, I got into the kitchen too as a part of the therapy, and, and it was uh, uh, we were coming up on Thanksgiving, and we invited the whole family, uh, friends, and neighbors. It was going to be a feast, mm-hmm. and I'd thrown myself into this. I'd thrown all of my passion, all my pain, all of it into preparing just something I, I wanted to I wanted to make people happy. I want to make my family happy because they were, they were going through this at the same time I was. Right. So uh, I started weeks in advance preparing um, and I started making desserts, cakes and pies, cookies, all sorts of stuff. And I would just put them in the freezer waiting for you know, the big day to take them out. Mm-hmm. But I started making fudge and one batch after another, I was I was doing a different flavor. I was throwing you know nuts and spices. I was going to the liquor counter, dumping a little you know, a little over there, and, uh, <laughs> little here, little there, and 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 I was. And Michaela noticed two things. My my girlfriend at the time, um, uh, my wife now, mm-hmm. uh, uh, she noticed two things. One was that she, there was. Uh, um, something she saw in me that she you know, hasn't, hadn't seen in six months. And that was a smile on my face. Mm. I was actually enjoying myself. The other thing she was noticing was that um, there were just far too much fudge for one family you know, to eat in one holiday. So she was sneaking it out the front door to give away to uh, friends and neighbors. And I say sneaking, like got to be real stealthy around a blind deaf guy. But Right, right, exactly. People started coming back and saying, can we buy more of this from you? And, and capitalist in me said, well, of course you may. Uh, and that's how we got started. We started, uh, we called it uh, Extraordinary Delights or EODFudge.com. Awesome. Um, so you can find us at EODFudge.com. Um, you know, people could follow us at EOD Confections on Facebook, uh, Instagram, and Twitter. Uh, and uh, please check us out. We've got more than just fudge. Uh, we've got some pretty incredible stuff there now. Yeah, that is awesome. And you actually, it, it's made in Savannah and I'm in Dublin, Georgia, which is only two hours away. So I know a lot of people around my community are going to listen to this. Can you actually go to Savannah to get it or do you have to order it online? Well, we're strictly uh, an online shop. So okay. uh, even though I, I definitely recommend hanging out in Savannah. Uh, let us send it to you. Yep. Yep. Awesome. Yep. That sounds great. Well, Aaron, I just want to say thank you for your service. Thank you for your candor. I really I thought this conversation would be a breath of fresh air, and it certainly was. And I can't wait to try some of your fudge. And you and Michaela are an inspiration to us all. And for you to go through the things that you have and yet to have the mindset, a growth mindset to walk through it and to find purpose. There's so many things there that we could talk for hours about. And uh, so your, your message is, is incredibly compelling. And once again, thank you for coming on the show and thank you for your service.
Well, thank you very much for having me. Yep, it's been my pleasure. Thanks for listening to the New Kind of Man podcast. You've been given some good manly encouragement, and now it's your turn. If you found today's content helpful, go tell a friend, and please leave us a review. Also, consider hitting that subscribe button so you don't miss a single episode. Now it's time for all of us to do what Theodore Roosevelt said. Create. Act. Get action. Do things. Be sane. Don't fritter away your time. Take a place wherever you are and be somebody. Get action.